This is Unfiltered, episode 322, for August 13th, 2020. Violent drug offenders will commit more than 100,000 crimes on this day alone. And the sad part is it that we have, we have no more police in the streets of our major cities than we had 10 years ago. And what the president proposes won't help much. What he proposes is no increase over what the Congress has already approved last year. In a nutshell, the president's plan doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them, and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. Hello, friends, and welcome to 322 of your Unfilter podcast, 82 days away from the U.S. election. The stage is certainly set, and now the players are known, and the strategy is being revealed. I have a lot to talk about, some stuff from the archives that I want to share with you, and a few other tidbits around the election. But, as always, right now, we're starting with COVID, and more questions are bubbling up about the accuracy of the U.S. coronavirus data. I'll have a couple of links for you in the show notes. This one from CNBC. The country recorded an average of 52,875 new cases every day over the last seven days. That's down 19% from 65,285. Now, COVID-19 testing has also declined, (laughs) falling from an average of about 814,000 tests per day, two weeks ago at least, to 716,000 now, a 12% decline over the same two-week period. In Texas, new COVID-19 cases have fallen by 10% over the last two weeks, but testing is down by 53%. There was also a joint letter put together complaining about the way data is being handled now. I have links to that in the show notes, but we'll start, as we always do, in our coverage with audio because the Unfilter show is all about the clips, all about them. All right, we're going to begin with the latest on the coronavirus emergency. The United States now reporting more than 5 million cases across the country, deaths now exceeding 162,000 after another five straight days of over 1,000 daily deaths. Robin. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's unfortunate. It's a lot. Uh, but seeing different places react differently has been maybe the most fascinating tidbit to this. New Zealand has put the city back on lockdown after four infections. New Zealand is taking urgent action to prevent the spread of COVID-19, putting the city of Auckland... There it is, Auckland. I couldn't remember the name of it. The city of Auckland has been put on lockdown over four infections from the same household, the entire city. On lockdown after four new cases popped up, there had been no new infections in that country for more than three months. Officials are investigating whether the virus in Auckland was imported by freight. The country's director general of health says all of the infections were found within one household. She says surface testing is underway at a store where a man from the infected family worked. Uh, Michelle, what's remarkable about this story is all of Auckland is... You got to... You got to really look this uh, clip up. I didn't link it, unfortunately, because um, I didn't plan on on <laughs> talking about this part. But what's so great about this clip, and unfortunately, it's a very visual thing, is the anchor he's addressing just has this disgusted, like, this is ridiculous. Look, what are they thinking? 
until until she starts to read the script and realizes that they're supposed to be kind of for it. And she has to completely change her attitude once it gets thrown to her. But right now, at this moment, she has this completely disgusted, befuddled look on her face, if you would. Uh, Michelle, what's remarkable about this story is all of Auckland is going on lockdown right now. And that's exactly the way health officials say you flatten the curve. And as both of you know, in this country, it's a struggle just to get people in some states to wear masks. Yeah, the prime minister has been relentless in fighting this disease. Uh, she is not letting up. And just another <laughs> example of it. Yeah, so they... they <laughs> They pivot and make it about how we can't even get people to wear masks, but they're locking down for four cases. Yikes. What they need to do is go to Mother Russia, where Putin says they have a vaccine so safe his own daughter's taking it. Russian President Vladimir Putin says this morning that his country is now using the world's first coronavirus vaccine. Putin says his daughter has received it and is doing well. Authorities say Russian medical workers, teachers and others in high risk groups will get the vaccine first. Our Dr. David Agus is with us. David, what do we know about this vaccine and how much testing has it actually been given so far? Yeah, you can guess that the U.S. media is going to be extremely skeptical of any news like this coming out of Russia. I'm covered in Jesus' blood because I'm covered in his blood. Thank you very much. Well, Anthony, on June 18th, they started with about 38 volunteers at the current administration that was was approved in Russia. And so we know in those 38 individuals that there was an immune response. The state reported, not scientific journals, the state reported. But we don't know whether it actually protects and we don't know what will happen when large numbers of people are inoculated. It's akin to 1957 and a Sputnik moment. Big proclamation. But I'm not sure all the data are there yet. Well, except for Sputnik was real. Um, we we don't really actually know for sure yet. There could be long-term ramifications. Uh, there's so much, so much focus on the vaccine right now, and I, I do understand it. I get it. Really, I do. But if we could just siphon off 20% of all of the vaccine hype and spend that same amount of time hyping up quick testing— We'd be in a much better position. You guys know I've been harping on this now for weeks. And Bill Gates got a little airtime recently, and he touched on rapid testing as well. I haven't played any Gates clips for a while, so I thought I'd grab this one for you. Yeah, your period of infectiousness can start a couple days before you would feel the symptoms to seek out a test and extend to about four days after. That's almost all of your infectiousness. So the value of a test is that when you get that result that you're positive, that then you quarantine yourself uh, and you don't infect uh, members of your household or uh, other people that you know. This is essentially basic information that the public lacks. Basic understanding of when something is contagious, how you may or may not feel at the time it is peak contagious, and why rapid testing plays a critical role in that early phase. Is every day that goes by, that peak of infectiousness is going down, down, down. And so by the third, even the third day, uh, the value is, you know, maybe 20% of a timely result. Now, you know, very wealthy people have access to these quick turnaround tests or they get ahead in line. Uh, and they're getting more of those overall tests. And so, you know, the one breakthrough we did 
the foundation to get, did get pushed through is that instead of a health provider having to jam the swab to the super back of your nose, that you could just self-administer at the tip of your nose. And that's equally accurate and doesn't uh, risk infecting the other person and it can speed up the activity. I'd love a clip if you can find it for me. In a similar interview or another interview regarding COVID-19 recently, Bill Gates advocated for the government getting a backdoor to encryption, to public encryption. And his reasoning was to stop the spread of misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines. Crack all encryption. So that way people can't hide in the corners of the Internet. This is something I read a transcript, but I know there must be audio of it out there somewhere. Unfilter.show slash Discord. There's a clips channel in there if you find it. When I listen to this stuff and I think about the basic information that the public is missing to properly take care of themselves, to properly vote in a democracy. It reminds me of something from a Carl Sagan book from 1995. This is a clip from the audiobook. Unfortunately, it's not read by Carl Sagan, but it feels like a warning. It feels like he's describing the reality in which we live today. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues. I want to pause right there. Tell me you're not feeling like that's a perfect description of where we ended up. And there's, there's not a lot we can do. But there's something I can do, and it's this show. I can at least try using the tools and facilities and skills that I have to do something. And, and it's this show, and it's the people who support this show. I'm going to continue on this clip because it's, it even, even more continues to describe our current situation. When the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide, almost without noticing, back into superstition and darkness. Yeah. And I hope that this show can be a beacon of light. It can help people sort through what's going on, even if it doesn't have all the answers. I hope it documents what's happening from the people's perspective and gives you something to think about. Patreon.com slash unfilter. I am so grateful for the people who do support this show. The pickup on support has slowed down a little bit, so if you've been thinking about it, please do head to Patreon.com slash unfilter. Also, I should mention, bit of good news if you're a patron, or if you're not a patron yet but you sign up, you'll get access to something I released over the weekend a special breakdown of the recent frontline United States of Conspiracy. Conspiracy theories are an effective political tool. They work. They help shape elections. They help shape public discussion. They help people decide what to believe. Conspiracy theories work. 
all across the country. You will see a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Alex Jones helped usher in a new and dangerous era in American politics. American conspiracy theories are entering a dangerous new phase. One where the truth doesn't matter. COVID-19 is a Joy-Con bio-weapon. Where political opponents treat each other as mortal enemies. Hillary Clinton is a damn demon. Where lies and conspiracies flourish. Pizzagate is real. Sandy Hook, it's got inside job written all of The United States of Conspiracy. So I do a real-time breakdown of that Frontline special for the patrons. Patrons, patreon.com slash unfilter. It's up now. If you didn't notice it, it just went up a couple of days ago. And it was a heck of a special they did. Big budget on that one, that's for sure. And so uh, <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, I could, I could just let this go by and not say anything. And I know some of you out there would have seen it. And some of you would miss it. Some of you it's even region blocked for. Or I could sit down and properly break down and pull apart and deconstruct what they're doing and what they're trying to message to you. And I think it, I think it turned out pretty good. So check that out, the Patreon page. It's exclusive just to our patrons. And I'd love you to uh, tell me what you think. I've been getting some really good feedback in the uh, Discord and on Twitter about it. So I'm glad you guys have been enjoying it. Now let's move forward. Let's talk about the economy because I think COVID and the economy are pretty closely linked. And Trump has made some moves that he is touting as practically taking care of the entire problem. And, of course, the rest of the world has reacted. Now, what is the problem? The problem is that our government is a failed state. It's a failed state that can't get its act together to help and serve the people that elected it. And the Republicans and the Democrats have been completely unable to come together on an agreement to extend the uninsurance uh, 600 up. And also, there were several programs to like fund local state programs, police, of course, that's become controversial, rescue, aid, of course, that's controversial right now as well. Everything's controversial. And so Trump said, I'll fix it. I'm going to hold a press conference and I'm going to cut some executive orders. And then we just sat back with the popcorn and watched. Thank you very much, and uh, it's a great honor to have everybody here. And I know the press uh, was not quite expecting this, so I appreciate your being able to attend. We have uh, a terrific number of things and some very positive things to tell you tonight. I want to begin by giving an update on the economy. So he gives a brief update on the economy and pretty quickly gets into the taking shots. It wasn't their fault that... We were infected with this disease from China and get relief to American families. Yet, tragically, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer continue to insist on radical left-wing policies that have nothing to do with the China virus, nothing to do with it at all. It almost sounded like he was going to say revolution there for a second. The China virus. Got to call it the China virus. You know Trump. He's got to stay on brand. Crooked Hillary. Sleepy Joe. Got Got to stay on brand. What ended up happening was a big show of Trump signing some executive orders that attempt to make up for a lack of congressional action. Now, here in the United States, Congress holds the purse strings. So anything that's really about spending money is supposed to go through Congress. 
But much like Obama, Trump tries to bypass a dysfunctional Congress with executive orders. Every time a president does this, they essentially set precedent for the next president to abuse the executive order's power. So Trump signs these executive orders that then immediately people begin to pull apart, which we'll get to in a moment. But I think on a whole, people missed the bigger picture here. Uh, I acknowledge that what Trump is trying to do via executive order will have tremendous delays, some intentional, some just because of the way it's being carried out. It is unclear on how it'll be paid for by the states or if the Trump administration will cover it completely. It is unclear exactly where that money is coming from. I acknowledge all of these things up front. And that's why I really hope they don't have to go the route of the executive order. I hope our government can function properly. But it might actually be more of a bargaining position than it is an actual attempt to solve the problem. This is a clip from Trump a couple of days before that press conference where he assigned the executive orders. And he indicates that he's really kind of using this to, to signal, to signal the intention and the position of the Republican Party from the top. You could argue that he could have done this from the very beginning to speed things along. And I'll be uh, issuing at some point in the not-too-distant future a very strong statement on that, probably in the form of an executive order. Why do you need her to do an executive order if it's already a part of it? Just a double law? safety net and just to let people know that the Republicans are totally, uh, strongly in favor of. That's the key right there. Listen to this part right here. Just to let people know the Republicans are strong and in favor. Let people know that the Republicans are totally, uh, strongly in favor of pre-existing condition, taking care of people with pre-existing conditions. It's a it's a. Uh, signal to people. It's a second. Uh, it's a second platform. We have pre-existing conditions will be taken care of 100 percent by Republicans and the Republican Party. I think Trump uses these executive orders as positioning pieces for the party. This is them essentially laying out where they're at and what they want the negotiations to come to. And he can claim at the same time he's taking decisive action while really he's just setting the table for the debate, hopefully in Congress, that gets the actual purse strings and spends the money. Well, I guess that's a whole other issue, but that's for a whole other episode. There is a lot of vagary on the details and how this will be implemented, and it's really bad, you guys. It's so bad that even Trump's own staff doesn't understand the details even his secretary of treasury. Go ahead. It should be 800 bucks. I beg your pardon. It should be 800 bucks for the unemployment. 800 or 400? No, it should be four. It should be $800. If the states step up, we're prepared to match. That should be come out. $400 federal, $400 states. Okay. I, we'll, we'll move on because I think this is, it's not what the president said and it's a bit confusing. Now, that's Larry there. Uh, he's a little confused. And I can understand why. It's not clear on how this is going to work if the states will have to cover it completely. And if you could you imagine and Trump says they'll figure it out on a, on a case by case basis. But could you imagine the process involved in just sorting that detail out? <laughs> how long that's going to take? And then you multiply that across all the states. It's ridiculous. So maybe maybe with this positioning, the Democrats and the Republicans can come together and negotiate. 
Except for it sounds like everyone is just being as partisan as possible still. Well, first, good morning, Dana. It's nice to be with you on a Sunday morning. Let us all be prayerful that we can meet uh, the needs of the American people, especially as we all uh, watch the uh, angst that is associated with sending children back to school. What the president's advisor said uh, is it really shows the weakness and the meagerness of what the president proposed. First of all, he's saying states have the money. No, they don't. They have expenses from the coronavirus. They have lost revenue. Uh, because of that, they, may, they are firing uh, health care workers, first responders, uh, teachers, and the rest, uh, sanitation, transportation workers, because they don't have the money. Uh, second of all, he, um, uh, everything is left out. Our assistance to the schools feeding the hungry, helping people who are going to be evicted. The president's uh, well, didn't even do a moratorium. He just did a study or a look at a moratorium. So, again, uh, something's wrong. Either the president doesn't know what he's talking about. Clearly, his aides don't know what he is talking about. and Or something's very wrong here. <laughs> Nancy, Nancy's just taking the shots there. Um and I'm kind of glad to see that the media, as much as they do, is calling her on the failure to negotiate local relief early on. It's a point I've made twice on this show so far, and she's taken some heat over the weekend for not having some of this already wrapped up. I want to talk specifically about this extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits that expired. Uh, two top Obama... Uh- now, in this particular case... Um, I'll play the rest of this, but this is not particularly about local funding. We'll get there. But I want to show you the just sort of combative nature of the discussions, and then we'll continue on. Economic officials, Tim Geithner and Jason Furman, wrote in June that extending $600, would, uh, quote, does not make sense now. Uh, you're standing firm on that number, on that $600. Yes. Why are you insisting on that as opposed to having a compromise with the Republicans so that People out there who are hungry, who desperately need that money, could get something rather than nothing, which is what they have now. Well, let's just say that the $600, um, uh, many economists tell us, I didn't even see that on their part, many economists tell us that that has kept many, many millions of people out of poverty, A. B, what they put on the floor of the House Senate last week was... Two hundred dollars. Okay, so you have six hundred. They have two hundred. What about four hundred? I mean, yeah, that seems what like what the president a proposed. What the president proposed yesterday at his country club, <laughs> surrounded by his people who must spend thousands of dollars to join. Says the outrageously rich Nancy Pelosi. Is something that won't even work. He's talking about, well, I'll put up 400 and the states will put up 100. Right. He's they talking about money. executive they action, which is, which is questionable. I'm talking about you know, doing I'm, it the right I'm, way. I'm saying that he, what he put forth is not is not even workable. Would you do $400 extra? I'm not negotiating that right here. It depends on what else is in the bill. That It, it depends on what else is in the bill. <laughs> I mean, there is a different tone to that discussion. Uh, Dana Batch is pushing her on a few of the details. Nancy can tell that uh, things are not really going as smooth as they usually do for her. She was also on Chris Wallace's show, and uh, he brings up the uh, question of the original missed opportunity to get local funding. 
Master negotiator, but didn't you mess this one up? Because you talk about all the things that the president's bill. Let me just finish, if I may, Speaker. Uh, now, because there's no deal at all, cities and states won't get any money. There's no money for the post office. There's no money for hospitals. There's no money for state boards of election. Uh, you knew that the president was threatening to take this executive action. I understand that uh, you weren't going to get everything you wanted and didn't get any, everything you wanted, but should you have cut a deal? And are you ready to go back into talks to try to come up with a fuller package? Well, clearly you don't have an understanding of what is happening here, both in the uh, weakness of the president's executive orders, uh, which don't give the money uh, to enhance benefit, but puts a complicated formula there, which will take a while, if at all, to accomplish, to put money in the pockets of the American people. What we have said, we're going to honor our heroes, state and local, health care workers, et cetera, first responders, teachers and the rest. And that's part of our argument is how much are they willing to do. Secondly, we're going to stop the uh, stop but, but, the but, uh, but we're going to stop. Speaker, no, if, if I allowed you me. to finish, you allow me to finish. They're going to uh, let's open our economy by addressing the, addressing the virus, which the president has ignored for months now. She's swinging. She's swinging and she's not taking any crap, even when she's on PBS with nice, kind Judy. The other point Republicans are making is they are now showing flexibility in money for state and local governments. This is, again, a difference. Democrats want more money. Republicans want a lot less. They are saying they're willing to show flexibility. And they're also saying a lot of the money that was passed in the spring, Madam Speaker, has not even been spent yet. Well, so if you want to be an advocate for them, there. Judy, if you want to be an advocate for them, no, I'm, let's I'm, know what the facts are. I'm playing are. devil's advocate no, here. No, you aren't. Okay. <laughs> I love it when she accuses the PBS news anchor of carrying water for the Republicans. That's rich. But I guess everybody's against her right now. Um, she has this technique that I find intensely, intensely infuriating. And I think it's one of the reasons I kind of go hard on her. Uh, besides the fact that she's corrupt and rich and she sort of represents the worst of the corporatist establishment Democrats, that stuff aside, she manipulates people with their religion. Nancy Pelosi is not a particularly religious person. A couple of years ago, though, and she, there, she even kind of laughed and joked about it in public, she realized she could play the same game the Republicans play, as she put it. And she realized she could play on people's faith. She could use that to manipulate them and get them on board with her as a person, as a politician. And I, I find it so disingenuous and so manip manipulative. And I'll play an example for you. This, this was on her uh, Chris Wallace interview I was just playing earlier. This being a Sunday morning, I just... Uh, uh, recall a prayer that says, pray for those who are hungry, pray harder for those who will not feed them. Her own throat begins to close up with her bullshit that her body is just convulsing from. Pray for those who are homeless, pray harder for those who will not give them shelter. Pray for those who are sick and lonely, pray harder for those who will not give them comfort. But what the president did does not address schools, it, uh, all of the issues. She turns it into a Trump twist attack. 
which is gross. And here she is essentially pulling a shorter version of the same tactic on the CNN show with Dana that I played earlier. That are negotiations going to resume? Or are well, negotiations so. dead? I hope so. We look, we have a big difference and here's why. For example, millions of children in America are food insecure and, and their families as well. But I always like to focus on the children. In, the, in our bill, we have tens of billions of dollars to address the hunger needs in our country, which are there normally, but exacerbated during the pandemic. We have tens of billions of dollars. They have 250,000, 250,000 dollars. So do they care? You know, I have a prayer that I say, um, let's pray for those who are hungry. Let's pray harder for those who will not feed them. Then we go to the, uh, the uh, so, Princeton lab, on ev- eviction lab. So you can, then she just continues in on her attack. But she just sort of sprinkles it in there when she has the moment. And uh, I, I find it so gross because they clearly, clearly do not care about the children or the people, or else they would be in there compromising and getting something figured out. Here's my take on the expense. Just a really quick version. It's a lot of money. The Democrats essentially want to spend $3 trillion. Obviously, that's bad. That's going to be my children's debt and their children's debt, and it's horrible. However, they're going to spend money. They're either just going to add it to tables in a database for Wall Street and banks, or they're going to cut checks to sandwich shops and pizza shops that are quote-unquote small business. They're going to spend the money. And the legitimately, if they're going to spend the money, regardless if it's a good idea or not, the most effective thing to do would be to give it to the people because they will go out and buy stuff. They'll stabilize the economy. They'll fix things. They'll save money. They'll bring down their own debt. They'll make the economy safer and stable. If you give it to the people, if the bankers just keep the money, it doesn't really change anything as the last 30 years are really showing us. Things are bad for the states, but things are also not looking so great in the UK. They may be sliding into their biggest recession in history. It is, it is official. The UK is in recession, and it's not just any recession. It's a fall of 20.4% uh, in gross domestic products uh, in the second quarter alone, so over the lockdown period. That is an unprecedented number. We have literally never seen anything like that. In t- um, I'm wondering where these lockdown recessions are going to lead to. The scale of the fall in the economy. It is the biggest recession that the UK has ever faced in terms of depth uh, since GDP was invented, basically, back in the 1930s. And- <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> wow. That's, um, that's bad. That's bad. I, I feel for my friends over there, and uh, I, I hope I hope that things resume once people feel safe, once economies are fully restarted. I hope things pick back up. But I worry that the length and depth will take a decade to come back from. Oh, all right. Uh, quick showception here. There's a couple of things to, I suppose, I should uh, pass along. Number one, uh, if you would like to support the show beyond just Patreon or perhaps can't afford to do Patreon right now, which I understand, 
spreading the show around to to friends, to family, to somebody who would be in the mindset of Unfilter. Don't spring it on somebody who's watching Rachel Meadow or Sean Hannity every single night. They're going to lose their marbles. But spread it around. Share it with people you think would be interested. Word of mouth is the only form of advertising that works for podcasts. And because I don't want to conflict with the day job, I'm not plugging it on JB. This is an independent thing I'm doing on my own. I'm recording from my RV in the evenings after work. This is my own little independent enterprise, if you would. Uh, And so I try not to conflate those two things. So I don't go on the air and plug it. I don't mention. In fact, I think it's probably cost me a lot of discovery. But I would like to lean on the audience who is loving the show right now or at least finds it to be valuable discussion. I would love it if you'd share it with just somebody, maybe a couple of somebodies. I think that'd be really great. Also, just one more plug for how to get a hold of me unfilter.show slash is it dot show all of a sudden i have lost all confidence but i'll mention it must be yes unfilter.show i don't think i would have dot com but i don't know we've been around for so damn long i mean it's possible unfilter.show slash contact and unfilter.show slash discord contacts for the email discord is where the chat community is at i think um in the not too distant future either i'll start doing a few more live versions of the unfilter show because i miss having that chat room going so we'll keep an eye out for that i'll probably make announcements in the discord and i'll try to make announcements in this section of the show too oh oh, here we go speculation is over joe biden has named kamala harris as his pick for vice president Both will appear together in Delaware tomorrow. Biden tweeting, I have the great honor to announce that I've picked Kamala Harris, a fearless fighter for the little guy and one of the country's finest public servants, as my running mate. Okay, so we have our VP uh, pick, and um, I'm relieved it's not Susan Rice. I think that would have been a, a bad, bad choice for not just for the Biden ticket and strategy, but um, for the country. Now, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Senator Harris, but I can see the strategy. If this is sort of the no duh, we got to get rid of Trump election in which Democrats are bypassing dozens of up and comers that I think would have really energized the base um, by uh, Bernie's not really an up and comer, but they passed him over. Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there's there's, uh, of course, uh Others that I think would have been particularly interesting, which we'll get to. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, we'll play some clips here in a little bit. But I could see the strategy here. She's uh, She is kind of a safe choice, and she's kind of an obvious choice. She's well-vetted. She was a former presidential candidate, so the nation is familiar with her. She's been an elected official. She's won elections. She raises a lot of money. In every sense, she kind of picks up where Joe Biden falls short. She's energetic. She's a black and southern Asian woman. She's born from two immigrants. Uh, she's got a, like a like this um, vigor about her. She's got energy to her. She's a she is a sharp debater, uh, which we'll get to some of that. And um, she can really kind of tilt to whatever direction the wind is blowing for her party. 
couple of fun facts. In 1994, Harris got her first job from Willie Brown for being his girlfriend. He was married at the time. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. She's being sued by the guy involved with the 2015-2016 Planned Parenthood videos where they talk about selling baby parts. Um, they originally dropped the charges, but then uh, Harris used her position to go raid that guy's house and then put a bunch of uh, felony charges on him, uh, basically on behalf of Planned Parenthood, according to leaked emails. Uh, and Kamala Harris owes, or Kamala Harris owes, $1.1 million to vendors from failed from her failed presidential campaign per her FEC filings. Now, Trump and Fox News will try to paint her as some crazy progressive. She is not a progressive. She's a self-titled top cop. Now, I stand before you as the top cop of the, the top cop, top cop, the top cop of the biggest state in the country. No offense, Eric Schneiderman. She like to call herself the top cop. Uh, she's not technically a cop, but uh, maybe she's a cop for the status quo. Senator Harris is um, not a progressive prosecutor. This is from the New York Times, January 17th, 2019, opinion piece by Laura Baslin. Uh, Laura is a law professor and a former director at the Law School Project for the Innocent in Los Angeles. She writes, consider Senator Harris's record as San Francisco district attorney from 2004 to 2011. Ms. Harris was criticized in, two, in 2010 for withholding information about a police laboratory technician who had been accused of inintentionally sabotaging her work. Now, <clears throat> this is a cute one. The drug lab technician was using drugs and getting results contaminated by their own drug use. Harris contested the ruling when that came up and they tried to get the evidence thrown out by arguing that the judge's husband, who was a defense attorney, had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosing evidence and that had created a conflict of interest. She tried to get a technicality in there. She lost. And more than 600 cases handled by the corrupt technician had to be dismissed. Worst of all, though, and this is truly tragic, Kamala Harris's record in wrongful conviction cases is bad. There's the case of George Gage, an electrician with no criminal record who was charged in 1999 with sexually abusing his stepdaughter. The case largely hinged on the stepdaughter's testimony, and Mr. Gage was convicted. Afterward, the judge discovered the prosecutor had unlawfully held back potentially exculpatory evidence, including medical reports indicating that the stepdaughter had been repeatedly untruthful with law enforcement. Her mother even described her as a pathological liar who lives her lies. In 2015, when the case reached the United States Court of Appeals in the Ninth, Citric, uh, <laughs> in the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco, Ms. Harris's prosecutors defended the conviction. They pointed out that Mr. Gage, while forced to act as his own lawyer, had not properly raised the legal issue in the lower court as the law required. The appeals judge acknowledged this this had been done and that the timing hadn't been quite right. Um, but they used that to dismiss the case. Again, another technicality. 
She refused to budge. The court upheld the tech, uh, the conviction. And Mr. Gage is serving a 70-year sentence still, right now. I went back to that court's cameras from August 7th, 2015, in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and I grabbed a bit of the audio. I have the entire thing linked in the notes. This is George Gage's representative, and I grabbed this moment for you. And I can represent to the court that Mr. Gage is, in fact, innocent of the charges. The only reason why he sits in prison in San Quentin State Prison at age 76 is because the state has saw it fit to not disclose the most material information on the only witness that they had against him. On the only witness they had against him. There was nothing else corroborating those allegations. If you read Marion Bonta's testimony, it is hard to imagine how someone could even testify. She had absolutely no idea about what went on. She couldn't even describe one incident. The one incident she does describe about her brother walking in is is ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. Now, I've had the opportunity to look at this record very closely, and I can uh, represent to the court, Your Honor, that, again, there's no doubt in my mind that the prosecutor here wanted to win the case. He was becoming a judge. Mr. Formani, yes, sir. For, yes, Your Honor. you know, you're making, I think, a, you know, in my view, a strong case on the merits. The problem, I think, as Judge Nelson alluded to, is you haven't made the required showing under EDPA. So they get him on the technicality. It goes on from there. Senator Harris's buddy wanted to uh, to make a name for himself. There is a, another example, um, the gentleman who ran back, the gentleman, the two of them, I think it was Backpage.com. She went after sex workers intensely in her time and went after Backpage.com for essentially being pimps, even though it was sort of uh, a flimsy case that they didn't think they'd be able to get through. Right before an election, hers, she had those guys arrested and they were all on the TV, them in court. Of course, she got elected. And then pretty, clo- pretty soon after that, the case was dismissed. All that said, even though I think she's a bad cop, and I think it's risky in this climate right now to have two top cops on the ticket, I still think it was a savvy choice by the Biden campaign. I think strategically, it's very clever. And she has some political debt, as I just demonstrated, but nothing they can't really overcome with the strength that they will have in identity politics. And that's incredibly powerful right now. And she receives that kind of Obama-style praise from the media, an historic shocker that was also the most reasonable political pick and the least risky. She's not a good pick for progressives. But this pick is about extending and repairing the Obama legacy, not about structural change. And in my view, that's a shame, but it's not clear if that's the general public's view of it. Senator Harris will be a fighter for Biden in the campaign in the next three months. She's going to be out in public, the front energy, attacking Trump, attacking Pence. She can go out there and say things on behalf of the campaign, clean up for Joe. She can help reduce his need to be out in public under scrutiny. And she can cunt Wow. She can cut, (laughs) easy for me to say, Trump down with the same ease that she cut Biden down in the debates. 
She's a she's very good. She can get laser focused in on someone. And big money really likes Kamala or Kamala. I'm still working on this specific. Uh, and I think that's maybe the thing I like the least about here, if I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's probably the number one warning sign is how elated Wall Street was. Wall Street's leaders on Tuesday cheered Joe Biden's selection of Senator Harris as his running mate. Finance executives confident now that the ticket has what it takes to topple President Trump. This is something that I don't understand, but when you look at where the money is going to campaign contributions, it seems Wall Street is in on Biden. Even though you got I mean, you really got to admit the stock market seems like it's gone bananas under Trump and he really focuses on that a lot. So you'd think they'd be a Trump candidate. But I think they like just steady ease and really, you know, Biden's he's a corporatist Democrat, right? He's not a crazy progressive. So they find stability and security in there. Financial advisory firm Singham Global is already telling its clients that the choice of Harris reinforces the notion that the Democratic ticket is more moderate than it is progressive. Right there. That's that's the word from Wall Street. This is from a article on CNBC, which I have linked in the show notes, of course. So it's big money's favorite choice. It's establishment Democrats' favorite choice, It's which includes the media. And... I think it's very savvy from a balance standpoint because the unspoken secondary aspect to Biden's pick and why I think it was truly getting so much attention, why it was motivating so much speculation is she is the backup president. That's just the truth of it. He's 78 years old. He has dementia, in my opinion. In my estimation, he has some sort of loss of faculties. I shouldn't joke around about it. But I, I have had family members that have gone through this cycle where they wouldn't even admit it to themselves for a while. And so we weren't sure as a family. In fact, I remember a very heartbreaking moment where they had to come clean with us. And it was years into the process. It started in their 70s. So she is a backup president in a way that we don't really think of Pence or I don't think anybody was really thinking about, um, oh, Tim Kaine. There it is. I got it. Tim Kaine. Um, or even Al Gore. You know, you just keep going back and back, right? Now, Cheney, that's another story. <laughs> I think everybody knew that Cheney was running a lot of things. And I think it's going to be that kind of power arrangement in the White House again, where you have a front man who will be Biden and you'll have a background power and decision maker and mover, which will be Harris. And I think Wall Street will like that a lot. And it takes back some of the momentum from the progressive side of the party, the side that's fueling the riots, the side that Bernie Sanders speaks to. It is taking back momentum from them, and it's it's reestablishing the centrist Democrat party as in as in the lead, and it's it's really about rebuilding the Obama coalition and the Obama legacy. The rebuilding the Obama coalition is 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 central for Democrats, and and I'm glad that the, that that Biden's campaign has gone in this direction. This is Cornell uh, Belcher, I believe it is. He's a pollster, and he is on MSNBC, and they are smiles ear to ear about 
the VP pick. They, you should go look at their YouTube channel. Seriously, go look at MSNBC's YouTube channel and just look at their published videos. Because they're saying, signaling to the party that we're not going to run the campaigns of the 1990s and 1980s again. We're actually going to try to do what we did successfully in 2008. Look, Barack Obama... Garnered 43% of the white vote in, in, two, in 2008. John Kerry garnered 43% of the white vote uh, in, the, in the previous election, and he lost by 3 million votes, while Barack Obama won a, won a majority. The difference was, in fact, energizing and bringing in those newer, younger voters, that more diverse that more diverse electorate that, that, that you talked about. I mean, they are key. When you look at 2016 and you look at you know, where was Hillary off of Obama's margin among young black people? You know, she was off of Obama's margin by eight points among African-Americans under under 30. In many states, that's the election in itself. And it- so the idea here is that Harris will help close that gap. He says, quote, oh, um, uh, he says, quote, that, uh, that it was a geez. Obama said, quote, Biden nailed this decision picking Harris. And I think that sort of set the tone right there. There's um, some background information that I can provide on uh, Senator Harris. Most of her career has been as a prosecutor in law enforcement. She was a district attorney and then attorney general of California, 13 years as a prosecutor. Then she ran for the Senate three years so far. She's been um, on Capitol Hill doing that. And Judy, she's 55 years old. We know that uh, Joe Biden if elected, would be uh, the oldest president elected. And age is something that we know from his campaign that they were thinking about. There is also the fact that she's just a beast sometimes in congressional hearings. I knew well before the election kicked off that she must have presidential aspirations just because of the style of questioning that she often has. Be sure about your answer, sir. She is one of the Senate's newer members. Can you give me a yes or no uh, answer, In the closed briefing, well, it's not a short answer, Senator. The answer it, is... It is either you are willing to well, do that or not. And yet her interrogations are already legendary. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, yes or no? Could you, could you repeat that question? Harris came to Congress in 2017, drawing donations, presidential buzz, and attention on late-night TV. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? I'm not, a, I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a goddamn Kamala Harris brings it, man. In 2017, her grilling of then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions... I'm my just, question uh, is only as I don't have a detailed memory of that. ...this startling admission. I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. Like I say, she can really laser focus in on someone and go after them, which will be interesting as she does the counterattacking or the primary attacking. And I'll be... I'll be watching for that same kind of flair that she used in the Democratic debates about a year ago against Biden himself. I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Oh, gotcha, Joe. Although that wasn't my absolute favorite moment. Um, my favorite moment, who I think is an, a great up-and-comer, and I would 
I would consider voting for, but I'm kind of a uh, break the system and start over kind of guy. But there was a moment when Tulsi Gabbard just kind of destroyed Kamala in the Democratic debates. And that that was actually one of my favorite moments. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congress. Yeah, there's some good ones in the show notes that might be worth checking out to get some of those references. And I think one of the things that I've commented on before is her shifting position on healthcare, where it kind of just was obvious she was just going wherever the political winds blew her. And that pattern is repeated over and over again. I intend to co-sponsor the Medicaid for All bill. And because it's just the right thing to do. I am proud to co-sponsor it. It is about saying that this is about a right, not about a privilege for a few. You don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company. Let's eliminate all of that. Medicare for all would effectively eliminate private insurance. It would, it would essentially phase out private insurance companies. As the, as the main source, but there would still source. be supplemental. There'd still be access to supplemental. Okay. It was in the context of saying, let's get rid of all the bureaucracy. Let's get all of the ways. Oh, not the insurance companies. No, that's that's not what I meant. I support Medicare for all. It is my preferred um, As a policy. principle, you mean, not Bernie Sanders' bill? I support the bill. Okay. I support the bill. Well, because I su- the bill gets rid of private insurance for everything that is... It doesn't is, get rid for, of supplemental for, insurance. Right, for, for cosmetic surgery, but for all... So it doesn't get rid of all insurance. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? She raises her hand. <laughs> all right. Do you believe that private insurance should be eliminated in this country? No. You don't? No, I but do not. But you raised your hand last but night. But the question was, would you give up your private insurance for that option? And I said yes. My plan will separate your health care from your employer, meaning your employer will no longer dictate the kind of health care you receive. Under my plan of Medicare for All, private insurance companies will be able to provide coverage if they play by our rules. Oh, that's from the Washington Post. That's who put that together. And uh, I I really don't, I don't know what to make of that other than just somebody who's just extremely politically ambitious. And it's such a shitty issue for me because I have been both unemployed in the sense of, well, I mean, I worked for myself. I was self-employed, I should say, not unemployed. I was self-employed, but unemployed in the sense of healthcare. Like, I, it doesn't matter. Like, they, they, I can't get healthcare unless I want to pay tons of money. You know, thousand dollars plus a month, probably more than that, because my wife has type one diabetes, so it could be you know like three thousand dollars a month. Um, now I'm employed, and it's tied to my employment. And if I ever wanted to go off on my own, one of the risk calculations, as in nearly in a couple of years or a year, I can't remember, 40-year-old person, I uh, I should think about health care. And that's one of my big risk calculations now. It's kind of ridiculous that it's tied to employment when you think about it. But uh, she just needs to get to a part where she just needs to get to a place where the party's happy. 
And I think she's so on board with doing that. She's a modern Clinton Democrat. She truly is where she's savvy. In, she's she's a savvier speaker than the Clintons, um, but she's willing to make deals and kind of compromise. She doesn't really have a particular um, reason or agenda. She'll say it's for the children or for the needy, but you know, that's what all politicians say. It's ambition, right? It's all about ambition, but it's it's cloaked differently than, say, the ambition that Donald Trump has. And what's interesting about this is I don't and I can't believe this, but I don't think the Trump campaign has a proper response to this. It seemed like it was going to be pretty obvious. It was Susan Rice, Harris, maybe Stacey Abrams, who's probably having a bad day right now. They could have been prepping proper defenses. And what what Trump is going with so far is such a failed counterattack. She is uh, a person that's told many many stories that weren't true. She's very big into raising taxes. She wants to slash funds for our military at a level that nobody can even believe. She uh, is against fracking. Fracking is, she's against petroleum products. I mean, how do you do that and go into Pennsylvania or Ohio or Oklahoma or the great state of Texas? She's against uh, fracking. Fracking's a big deal. She's in favor of socialized medicine, where you're going to lose your doctors, you're going to lose your plans. She wants to take uh, your health care plans away from 180 million Americans. 180 million Americans that are very happy with their health insurance, and she wants to take that away. So she was my number one pick. I mean, she was, as they would say, because hopefully you'll start college football, she was my number one draft pick. And we'll see how she works out. She did very, very poorly in the uh, primaries, as you know. She was expected to do well. And she was, she ended up at right around 2%. You know, she ended up low in the, uh, in the, in the public polls, but man, did she earn some money. And after she wound down her presidential campaign, she continued to fundraise, which is why it's funny that she's, in debt, but she raised quite a bit of money. In fact, out of all of the potential Veep picks, she raised the most money. And as the corporatist establishment Democrat Party now operates, ye who raises the most funds shall have the most power. That's why Nancy's in office. And it's one of the reasons Senator Harris is now Joe's VP pick. I think it's a good pick for the kind of ticket that he's running for the centrist kind of balanced ticket that he's running. And she can mold herself to fit. Trump goes on to say that she's one of the most progressive in the Senate. That's crazy. That's crap. And and it's it's verifiably false. I mean, I just played clips for you that kind of prove that to be false. And I, I, I scratched the surface of the shit she pulled while she was the AG for California. Scratched the surface of it. I have a lot of links in the notes, uh, but I just didn't want to go because I'm not I'm not trying to make this a, you know, blow up Senator Harris episode. I'm just trying to let you know the reality of the situation, because you're going to have a bunch of people that support Trump like Fox News and his delegates or his segregates or whatever I'm trying to go for that will talk about what a loony progressive she is. (laughs) She is not. 
Tulsi Gabbard might have been, Bernie Sanders. You could have made that argument with Elizabeth Warren. But not with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Now, uh, today, as I record this, so yesterday as this is being released, Joe and Kamala hold, held their, um, like uh, I guess, official announcement. They, they officially announced it via Twitter, but then had an official unveiling of the decision in Delaware. And I grabbed a little audio for you. Please welcome Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. Thanks for being here. I wish we were able to talk to the folks outside, but we're keeping our social distancing and playing by the rules. You know, I'm just um, frying a little bacon here. But uh, it kind of seems super convenient that he couldn't just put the mask on and go out and talk to people. There are, and he's always pointing out how, uh, you know, they're... Social distancing and following the rules, that's why we can't be out much. Uh, sometimes I feel like you protest too much, Joe. I feel like you protest too much. Kamala seems to go right out of the gate at taking a crack at appealing towards the angry protesting crowd out there, the Black Lives Matters movement. She wants, she wants to bring them in under the Joe Biden tent. And she kind of just goes right at him in this uh, introduction speech. That yes, Black Lives Matter. All across this country, a whole new generation of children is growing up hearing the cries for justice and the chance of hope on which I was raised, some strapped into strollers of their own. And trust me, it's a song you'll never forget. So to everyone keeping up the fight, you are doing something. You are doing something great. You are the heroes of our time. And you are the reason. I know we are going to bring our country closer to realizing its great promise. But to do it, we'll need to work, organize, and vote like never before because we need more than a victory on November 3rd. We need a mandate that proves that the past few years do not represent who we are or who we aspire to be it's a pretty good pitch the pitch is help us defeat trump with a resounding victory so that way you can make the biggest virtue signal of all time <laughs> uh, i think it's clever and i think that's the kind of cleverness the campaign needs. it's just about 80 days out the biden campaign is looking better than i expected in a better position at least however I'll just leave this as food for thought, and then we'll wrap up the election stuff. Looking back at all of this, isn't it interesting that Biden wasn't just the presumptive guy they were all going to fall behind to begin with, much like Hillary was in 2016? It was everybody just assumed it would be Biden. In fact, Obama and others didn't really fall in behind Biden until not too long ago. I think it's interesting that the party didn't just assume 
that the former vice president of one of the Democrats' most popular presidents of all time wasn't just going to be the shoo-in. Like, they lacked confidence in Biden. But it seemed like over time, they kind of got their game together and everything was rolling and they'd figured it out and the endorsement started coming in and now the VP pick is there. I thought, okay, they're feeling a lot better. But something stood out to me over this weekend. Nancy Pelosi went on every show she could. And in all of them, she tried to drive home one point. Almost like that was truly the reason she was on those shows. She had something she had to warn everyone about. And that was Putin's meddling in the election. And friends, if it doesn't remind me exactly what happened in 2016, I remember sitting right on this show saying, what is going on with all this Russia stuff? It's almost like they're hedging. It was in the show well before the election. It just didn't feel right. And here we are again. It's almost like this hedge. If their guy doesn't win, they've got this plan B they can fall back on. China would prefer Joe Biden, whether they do. That's their conclusion, that they would prefer Joe Biden. Russia is actively 24-7 interfering in our election. They did so in 2016, and they are doing so now. China, that's fine. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, so what? But Russia, Russia. And, and they say that to a certain extent, but they need to tell the American people more. The American people, I believe, think they should decide who the president of the United States is, not Vladimir Putin making that decision for us. It's hysterical. It's hysterical. I wish it was the funny kind of hysterical. Um, uh, I, I hope, I hope they're not, it's just, I, it just feels so lowbrow. It feels like they just have zero faith in the intelligence of the American people. And the fact that it's been as effective as it has been perhaps does suggest their evaluation is correct. <laughs> Moving on. I've got to move on. That just upsets me too much. I want to share a couple things with you. Number one, uh, I've been watching these uh, Trump pressers. You know, he's back to doing the daily briefings. I haven't pulled many clips because, uh, you know, we get enough Trump just by every by him being basically every single story on the main news networks centers around Trump. So just by its very nature, there's so much Trump in all these clips that I watch them. I take note. If anything really, truly newsworthy happened, I'd grab it for you. Well, today I have something that I have never seen before. And it, it's gotten some play. It's gotten some play, but not nearly as much as you would think for what happened. You might know what I'm talking about. Brett Baer on Fox News will bring you up to speed. President Trump in the White House briefing room. Good evening. Welcome to Washington. I'm Brett Baer. Breaking tonight, the president left his scheduled news conference at the top of the hour just a couple of minutes after it began. The president was approached by one of his agents on the Secret Service detail, and he calmly left the podium immediately. Excuse me? Now, a short time later, Fox confirmed that there was a shooting outside the White House property. You're looking live uh, at the corner of 17th and Pennsylvania right now where that happened. As we were getting details about that shooting and exactly what happened, later told a Secret Service officer was involved in that shooting, expecting more details from the Secret Service. Uh, 
right in the middle of the introduction of his press conference, that Secret Service guy comes in and Trump, he, you know, he turns to him. He asks him to repeat himself. The guy repeats himself. Trump glances at the press pool, kind of shrugs a little bit, and then walks out. And then pretty soon, everybody in the press pool jumps up and starts looking out the side window uh, towards where the shooting was at. Now, I'm sitting here thinking, what is going on? Because when you first see all of this happen, the president's removed, the press jump up. It, it was like the longest 10 minutes ever. And I had this clip that I hadn't played for you yet that immediately came to mind. And I, I'm, I just, this thing just popped into my head and I was like, oh my God, it's happening. So I have a lot of enemies out there. This may be the last time you'll see me for a while. That was from a speech he did at the Whirlpool factory. He says, I have a lot of enemies and this, is, this might be the last time you see me for a while. What? When does the United States president say this? So this clip comes to my mind. Of course, he ends up coming back. He's calm. He's chill. No big deal. Just some guy got shot outside. No bigs. I'm fine. But for a moment, when I heard, when I saw what was happening, I'm like, oh my God, they're coming for him. Maybe there is a real threat. I'm going to play the full clip for you so you get the full context because this is wild and this is from the source audio. It's a disgrace. And the politicians allowed this to happen for many, many decades. You have people called middlemen. I don't know who the middlemen are. He's talking, by the way, about prescription prices, about how you can go out of the country and buy the same exact drug made in the same exact factory for just pennies compared to what you'll pay for it in the U.S. Many, many decades, you have people called middlemen. I don't know who the middlemen are. I don't know. They never say middle women, so they're politically not correct. But I've heard the term middlemen for a long time. They are so wealthy. They are so wealthy. Nobody has any idea who the hell they are, what they do. They make more money than the drug companies. You know, in all fairness, at least the drug companies have to produce a product. And it has to be a good product. But the middlemen, well, the rebate that I'm doing cuts out the middlemen and it reduces costs. And the money goes back to the people purchasing the drugs. So I have a lot of enemies out there. This may be the last time you'll see me for a while. A lot of very, very rich enemies, but they are not happy with what I'm doing. But I figure we have one chance to do it, and no other president's going to do what I do. No other president would do a favored nations, a rebate, a buy from other nations at much less cost. Nobody. And there are a lot of unhappy people, and they're very rich people, and they're very unhappy. And then he goes on, and he just says, here's something else I did as a president uh, that benefits. You know, he just kind of goes on to, rest of, to read his script. That part was off script. Strange. Not much coverage. Very odd. And so when I saw that, when I saw things going down, I thought, oh, no, this is it. It's beginning. Then he came back and everything was fine. I was like, okay, maybe not. But then I got thinking about it. What if uh, it was somebody there to kind of freak him out? To send him a warning you know, message? To send him a message in sort of a really brutal kind of way? Ah, probably not, but... Here's what the Secret Service said in their presser that evening after they had done some initial investigation. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tom Sullivan. I'm the chief of the Uniform Division Secret Service. I'm going to read a prepared statement. At approximately 5.53 p.m. today, a 51-year-old male 
approached a Secret Service Uniform Division officer who was standing his post at 17th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest near the White House complex. The suspect approached the officer and told the officer he had a weapon. The suspect then turned around, ran aggressively towards the officer, and in a drawing motion, withdrew an object from his clothing. He then crouched into a shooter's stance as if, as if he was about to fire a weapon. The Secret Service officer discharged his weapon, striking the individual in the torso. Officers immediately rendered first aid to the suspect and DC Fire and EMS were called to the scene. Both the suspect and the officer were transported to a local hospital. Why would you run up to a Secret Service officer? This is a um, this is one that's wearing a uniform. So you, you know he's law enforcement. Why would you run up to him and say, "I have a weapon," and then and then give them a heads up? But the whole thing is just bizarre. Um, will there be any more follow up on that? Who knows? <laughs> the whole thing is super strange. Trump could be just trying to play to his base. And say, like, I'm taking risks here, kind of like the underdog, maybe. I'm not sure. It's a weird thing for the quote-unquote most powerful man in the world to say. But it sounds like things Kennedy said. And it, it could be a tactic, or it could be him genuinely concerned that some of the things he's doing with prescription drug prices could get him in trouble. Let's do some follow-up on Lebanon's government. A whole swath of the cabinet has stepped down after that blast in Beirut. I'm at your quest in New York and welcome to CNN's uh, continuing uh, coverage of the crisis in Lebanon. In the last hour, well, in the last hour, the government has announced that it is resigning. The cabinet has announced it's resigning less than one week after the blast, of course, that rocked and destroyed large swathes of the Lebanese capital. That guy is such a clown. Um, I believe the president's still there and, and now in even more power and fighting outside investigation aid for some reason because locals suspect it would expose a whole bunch of uh, corruption and um, not look good for him. <laughs> uh, also, quite seriously, their food supplies are in very bad shape. They have about two weeks worth of bread and then they're out of some essentials. It's pretty, pretty grim. Um, I'll keep an eye on any major news things that develop, uh, maybe spare you from some of the awful grim details, but we'll see. Different organizations, for better or for worse, are now getting involved. Uh, there was a moment uh, back going back to Donald Trump at Whirlpool Factory when he wasn't talking about powerful enemies behind the scenes. He was making one of my most um, laugh-out-loud moments when I was clipping because it just totally caught me off guard. Like, I just... Uh, if I if I had been drinking something, it would have been a spit take. I'll play it for you. Because four or five years ago, this place was a disaster. In 2017, Whirlpool won relief from the ITC once again. Once more, your foreign competitors moved their factories to prevent a level playing field and to avoid liability, shifting production to Thailand. <laughs> How great is that? And to avoid liability, 
shifting production to Thailand <laughs> and to Vietnam. Thailand and Vietnam. Yeah, he realizes what he did. <laughs> Thailand. Yeah, Donald, I bet you're thinking about Thailand. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good, though. Your humble, unfiltered host is a trendsetter for taking your pooper with you when you travel. Why do you take your home with you? Exploring public spaces while avoiding public bathrooms. It's nice knowing that we can control the environment that we're living in and not have to worry about if something was sanitized or not. One way to deal with COVID? <laughs> Buy a recreational vehicle, an RV. It's hard to find a... A trailer we just bought it two weeks ago. We've looked at probably three of them so far and seen some, just haven't pulled the trigger yet. Sales of mid-range motorhomes were up 90% in June compared to last year. Are people telling you that they're interested in possibly buying an RV because of the pandemic? Just the fact that there's so many people coming, calling, emailing. Gary Threlfall has owned Garrick RV in New Jersey for 36 years. Lately, he's seeing more first-time buyers. It's kind of their only choice because an RV is a socially distanced vehicle, a socially distanced vacation, and a way to corral or keep your family together. A socially distanced zombie apocalypse podcasting get-out bus. Mm. Episode 322, recorded from your socially distant zombie apocalypse podcasting recording bus in the can. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you would uh, like to subscribe and you haven't done so already, go over to unfilter.show slash subscribe, where we have all the different kinds of links, including just the RSS feed. Links, context, even some videos, some good videos that didn't make it, didn't make any audio into the show this week. All of that unfiltered.show slash 322. Hey, look at me. I remembered it this time. Sometimes when you're live and you're doing something, it, like the most basic stuff just leaves your head. Uh, and if you were just like sitting down chatting with somebody, you wouldn't have any problem recalling it. But when you're like live and on the spot and talking to a microphone, poof, leaves your head. <laughs> what kind of sense did that make? Stupid human brain. Anyways... I think I got it out of my system. We have some top cops on the ticket going up against Trump, the law and order president. What's not to love about it? See you next week. Because I want to win. Why, 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 why,